Amen. Let's give it up for Anna. Awesome. Good job, Anna. Well, guys, I've been waiting a long time to say this. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, man. I'm so excited to get together with you guys this morning and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the best news in the world uh, that ultimately all of the things that threaten us as human beings have been fully and finally defeated forever through the person of Jesus Christ. And we gather together today, not for some, some, some like somber church service, but we're celebrating that Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, there is hope. Amen. Let's do it. If you're a guest with us today, I just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. We get rowdy around here, okay? We get rowdy around here, so we want to celebrate uh, Easter. No, but really, thank you so much uh, for gathering with us today. I'll say this before we dive into our Bible teaching. Um, Man, if we can help you plug in in any way, if we can help you explore Jesus uh, after the message today, if we can help you plug into community today, please let us know. The best way you can do that is by stopping by our Connection Center in the lobby right after the service, and we would love to help you, all right? Um, Now, before we, uh, before we dive in today uh, to our Bible teaching and kind of unpack some of the passage that Anna just read for us, I just kind of want to name a reality that goes along with days like today. Here, here, here's the reality. It's really easy for, day, uh, for us on days like today to get kind of like wrapped up in the cultural holiday of Easter with all of the like really good things that go along with it. We wear our bright colors. This is my Easter shirt. Okay, uh, we wear our bright colors. Um, uh, we we have we hunt Easter eggs, and I was doing that with my little girls yesterday. My little girls had the Easter bunny this morning, and you can just get so wrapped up. And all of those things are really good, but you can get so wrapped up in all of those things that you can just kind of like blaze by this claim that stands at the heart of today. Here's the claim. Okay, here's the claim: a man that claimed to be God died on a cross and then went to a grave, and then he, three days later, walked out of a grave as he was physically raised from the dead. And historically speaking, this is not like a metaphorical reality that means like, you know, you know, Jesus kind of changed things, so you can change all these, those things. The, the claim of Easter is that a guy physically has been raised from the dead. Okay, now, now, um, no matter where you're at on the religious spectrum, and I imagine that we've got people in the room on all different sides of the religious spectrum from like, no way I believe that claim, that's crazy, I don't even really know why I'm here, and you might be in that, I'm here to kind of appease somebody else, you know, Um, to like, heck yeah, Jesus got out of the grave, let's like get done with the message and celebrate it. No matter where you're at on the religious spectrum, like, man, one thing we can all kind of like agree on is that if this claim is true, If this claim is true, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes how we understand life. It changes how we understand religion. It changes how we understand the purpose of our lives. It changes everything. So my job uh, is pretty simple today. Uh, Here's my job. My job is to help us slow down long enough to really consider the claims that stand at the heart of today. Because if they are true, it changes everything. And if they are true, that means it can change you. 
Okay? So here's how we're going to do this, a little roadmap for our message time uh, today. Um, we're going to stare at a passage of scripture from the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 together that Anna just read. And as we work our way down through this passage, we're going to be answering three basic questions. Okay, So here are our b- three big questions for today. Number one, what is Christianity? What is Christianity? And in this one, we're going to go for clarity. So if you walked in here and you were asked that question, man, what is Christianity? If you're fuzzy on that, we want to go, let's get rid of the fuzziness and let's step into clarity. What is Christianity? What's at the core of all of this? Question number two is this. Is Christianity reasonable to believe? Is Christianity reasonable to believe? Here's another way we could ask this question. Do reasonable people with functioning brains inside their skulls really believe this stuff, right? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Is this stuff reasonable to believe? And then after we unpack that, if that's what Christianity is and it's reasonable to believe this, then what does it mean for me personally? You see, Christianity is not only this religious tradition or this kind of like life philosophy that kind of hangs up there in theory. Christianity is only good news when it is appropriated personally, okay? It's only good news when it's appropriated personally. So with that, let's dive into our first question together. What is Christianity? What is Christianity? We can think about biblical Christianity this way. Biblical Christianity is a religious reversal. Okay? Biblical Christianity is a religious reversal. Here's what I mean by that. It takes what most people think religion in is, and it turns it completely on its head in like the most liberating way imaginable. Okay, So here, here's what I mean. Let me unpack that a, a little bit. Here's what I mean. Um, most people, when it comes to religion, they kind of think that uh, every religious tradition is the same, and it kind of goes like this, that there is this kind of, there's this God in the sky, And he's kind of scary, and he's mean, and he's vindictive, and every time I think about him, I get like a little bit anxious, and uh, he's given us a list of rules, and uh, you know, if if we keep the rules, then things will go well for us, and you know, if I'm a good little religious boy or girl, like, you know, God's gonna bless me, and my life's gonna go well, but if I don't live into his law, then he's gonna kind of like, we don't like to talk about it, then he's gonna curse me, okay? Now, that's what most people think Christianity is. Can I just tell you that has nothing to do with Christianity? That has nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the exact opposite. It is a religious reversal. One of the things among many that sets Christianity apart as distinct from every other religious tradition and life philosophy in the world is that Christianity, don't miss, these, don't miss these lines, Christianity is not primarily about what you do for God so that he will love you. Christianity is primarily about what God has done for you because he already loves you. Okay, so let me say that again. I want, to get, I want to lay this foundation right here from the beginning. Christianity is not fundamentally about what you and I do for God so that we can earn his love and get his blessing and things will go better for us. No, Christianity is not like that at all. Christianity is about what God has already done for you because no matter what you've done this weekend, no matter what you've done in the past, he already loves you. And so here's, here's, here's what I just want to say before we start unpacking the scriptures. 
Man, if you, if you wandered in here because it's Easter Sunday and you're like, man, I don't really feel like I belong in church. If you, if you wandered in here and you're like, I've made a ton of mistakes. If you've wandered in here and you've got, you're carrying like all kinds of baggage into the room this morning that church kind of like brings up in you. And so you spend a lot of time kind of like avoiding settings like this. Can I just say this? Can we just get on the same page? God loves you. He loves you. And no matter, this is what I love about this truth, no matter what your heart posture is toward him right now, what we can be sure of, what we can be sure of is that his heart posture toward you is one of affection and love. He's for you. Christianity is not fundamentally about what we do for God so that God will love us. Christianity is fundamentally about what God has done for us because he already loves us. Now, this earth-shattering reality, this reality that kind of like turns all of religion and how we understand it on its head is where our passage begins. So let's stare at this together and consider what it's saying. Verse one says this. Verse one says this. Now I want to make clear, if you have your own Bible, like circle that, underline it. I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you. So he says, so right off the bat, he goes, here's my whole goal and what I'm about to write following these lines, my goal is clarity. We want to get rid of all fuzziness when it comes to what the core message of Christianity is, and we're going after clarity. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel, that's a fancy religious word for good news, the good news that I preach to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's a lot of language in there. Verse 3, for I passed on to you as, circle these, under, circle these words, underline them, most important what I also received. So if we were to summarize these first three verses, basically he says, here's what I want to do. I want to be as clear as possible on what the core message of Christianity is. I want to pass on to you what like is of, in my mind, most importance when it comes to all of these things that have to do with Jesus. Now what's going to follow is the earliest summary of the core message of Christianity, okay? Many scholars believe that this three-part summary that we're about to look at was being passed around within months of Jesus's death and resurrection. It is the earliest summation of the core of the Christian message. If you were to tear everything away, this is it. Verse three, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Okay, so first thing, we must be carrying around this thing called sin that Jesus died for, okay? He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. What does that mean? This means that this is a prophecy from the Old Testament that's been fulfilled. This is God's plan for Jesus to die for our sins. Verse four, that he was buried in a grave and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So here's the core of it. Here's the core of it. What is Christianity? It is the good news that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, that he was buried in a grave, and that he defeated that grave, and that he has been raised from the dead. That's it. So throw away all the other thoughts and opinions, 
Paul's going, throw away all of the things that you thought Christianity was. This is Christianity. That Jesus died for our sins. That he was buried in a grave. And that he physically rose again. Okay. Now the question we have to ask is like, okay, I get it. That's what Christianity is. What does that have to do with me if I am a normal person trying to live life in urban Denver in 2022? Like, why is that good news for me? That Jesus died for my sins. Like, you might be thinking like, I don't even really know if I have any, not any big ones that I can think of. Why was a burial and a resurrection 2,000 years ago? Why is that good news? Why is this good news for normal people doing normal life in Denver, Colorado in 2022? Answer. Because if we will all just kind of like take our masks off and be real with one another for one hot minute, none of us are doing okay. And can I just say this as a pastor? Me included. Me included. We're not okay. We're not okay personally, though we pretend like we are. And church, like, church kind of like makes the, the, kind of the worst of that come out in us for some reason. We feel like we've got to like dress up for Easter Sunday so we can kind of like put on an appearance that we're, we're all doing okay. But like we're not okay. And if I can just be like really honest with you, like I feel like I'm not okay. I've, I feel at times like I'm an emotional wreck. I feel at times like I'm missing my, my spouse and we're, we're struggling. We're personally just, and the list could go on for it. We're personally not okay. Can we just say this too? Culturally speaking, we're not okay. I mean, my gosh, choose your news source, whichever one you want. I don't know if you're a Fox News person or CNN person. It doesn't matter here. Choose your news source. And it's like you turn it on or you scroll it and it's like, yeah, we're not okay. Globally, we're not okay. We're not okay. And though we want to like pretend like everything is okay, we have to grapple with reality. And with all of our, and don't hear me wrong, like I love these things, I'm thankful for these things, but with all of our advances, with all of our technological advancements and social advancements and educational advancements and scientific advancements and therapeutic advancements, and we're thankful for all of those, but with all of those, can we just be honest for one hot minute and say, we are still totally crumbling in on ourselves? We're not okay. And yet, and yet, even though we are like that and the world is like that, we all still have this, and I know you have it in you, even if you're a big time pessimist, we all still have this internal longing for things to be made right. It's like, man, you don't have to like agree with the truth claims of Christianity to long for this. It's like I long for personal change. I long for the broken parts of me and the parts of me where I do things that I don't want to do. I long for that to go away. 
I long for relational change where I don't have this, I don't know if you feel this, it might be in your marriage, it might be in a friendship, it might be in a roommate situation, relational friction. I long for that to go away. This, isn't, this can't be how it was made to be. We long for cultural change, for global change. And what I love about Christianity is that Christianity is kind of like when you come to the Bible and you start piecing together all of the things that the, the faith of Christianity claims, it, it's like going to the doctor. And it's like we walk into the doctor and we get some hard news that we're sick. And, but we get a diagnosis. But not only do we get a diagnosis, but in Christianity, we also get the medicine that can make us well again. Okay? So what I want to do for just a minute is I just kind of want to give you, I want to zoom out from these three claims of Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was buried and he was raised again, and I want to kind of give you a more robust picture of what this good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection really means. The biblical vision for life is what you and I at our core long for. It's what we long for. All the way back at the beginning, at the, in the first two chapters of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, we get a vision of personal life and global life marked by things like beauty and joy and happiness and wholeness and human flourishing. This is the vision of the world that we get in the scriptures. There's, it's marked by harmony. There's divine harmony between us and God that we were created for. There's there's relational harmony, harmony horizontally. There's environmental harmony. All the things that we individually and as a culture are longing for are there on the pages of Genesis 1 and 2. This is why you and I have these like, the best way I can put it is this is why we have these kind of utopian longings for all the sadness in our world to be put away because God created us for a world like that. He created you for a world like that. So don't be overly pessimistic. You were created for things to go well. You were created not to die, but to live forever. You were created for, for relational harmony. You were created for a world like that. So why isn't the world like that? If God created the world and he created it to be like that, why isn't the world like that? Well, a lot of people have a lot of answers to this. The world's not like that because we don't have the right kind of politics. The world's not like that because we don't have good enough education. The world's not like that because we don't have good enough medicine yet. But the Bible answers that question at a deeper level, at a more foundational level. The Bible says the world isn't like that because we have rebelled against God's good way of beauty and flourishing as we've chosen to live life out from under his care and rule ourselves. We've said, God, we don't want to live into your way. We want to live our way. This is, in fact, what the Bible calls sin. This is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is not only like little bad things that you do or big bad things that you do, but sin at its core is our rejection of God's way as we live into our way. And guys, can I just tell you, it ruins everything. When God doesn't get his way and we get our way, chaos ensues. Chaos ensues. 
chaos ensues inside of us personally. Chaos ensues relationally in every relationship that we have. It's marked by chaos and strife. There's cultural chaos, global chaos. And ultimately, it is because of sin that God's good intentions for life forever are reversed into death. And sin is the reason we die. Sin, here's what I want you to see, undoes every single one of God's good intentions for you. Every single one of them, all the way to the grave. So there's our diagnosis of the problem. So now we ask, what's the medicine? What's the medicine? How will this curse of sin and death that follows and all of the chaos goes, that goes with it, how will it be reversed? Well, the medicine is the death and resurrection of the one, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Athanasius, he's a church father writing in the 300s, uh, so long time ago. People have been talking about this for a long time. Talks about a dilemma that God was in. Okay, so here's, here's the dilemma. Here's the dilemma. God loves you and he loves his world. He loves you and he loves his world. And here's what's amazing. God's deepest longing is for us and our world to flourish again with life. This is his deepest longing toward you. His deepest longing is to reverse the curse of sin, which is death, and set us free into eternal life. What I want you to see there is what you long for is what the living God longs for. They're the same. He wants what you, what you want. He wants to reverse the curse of sin, which is death, and set us free. But to do that, think about this, he has to get rid of sin. He has to get rid of sin. This thing that plagues us. So here's the dilemma. How will he get rid of sin without getting rid of us? And right here is the amazing thing that makes the God of Christianity so attractive. It's beautiful. In amazing divine love, God himself comes. The eternal son of God becomes a human being, Jesus Christ, and he does this so that he can die the death that our sins deserve. And in doing that, he reverses the curse of sin as he's buried in the grave. And he is raised to life, declaring that by trusting in him and his work on our behalf, we can be forgiven and set free from the curse of sin. Here's what that means for you. You can have your slate wiped clean forever, no matter what you've done. But there's more. You see, a lot of people stop there with Christianity. It's like you can be forgiven of all of the things that you've done because Jesus has died the death that you deserve. But do you know that there is more to Christianity? Not only can your slate be wiped clean, but his resurrection, his physical resurrection from the dead is a sign of things to come for us. He is reversing even death itself and will raise us up again to physical eternal life forever in a new heaven and new earth. Can I just say the truth claims of Christianity do not exist in this like spiritual fantasy land. They get down in the nitty gritty of our world and take all of our sadness and say it will be reversed forever. Jesus is going to make all things new and you're being invited in. The sickness is death. The diagnosis is sin. And the medicine is Jesus' death and resurrection. This is Christianity. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is reversing the curse of our sin 
and he's going to raise us from the dead to live forever. Notice how little that has to do with you and me. Notice that that has, for that to be true for you, that has nothing to do with you getting your little religious act together. Christianity is not what you do for God so that he will love you. Christianity is what God has done for you in taking on flesh, dying the death that you and I deserve for our sin, being buried in the grave and defeating the one thing that's coming for us all, the grave. So the second question we have to ask is, okay, I see what Christianity is. I get the overall flow of it. I get the promises. I get the claims about Jesus' death and resurrection. But like, is Christianity reasonable to believe? Is this reasonable to believe? So if I'm in your seat, and I'm listening to me unpack this. Here's the question I would be asking me. Not that any of you are going to shout this out. That would kind of be, that would be, you know, taboo for, to say the least. But if I were in your seat, I would be asking me this, especially if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. I would be saying, you really believe that? And I would do it with raised eyebrows, very sarcastically. You really believe that? That like, because a guy like died 2,000 years ago, that I can be forgiven of everything I've ever done and you really believe, you really believe, not metaphorically, but physically, a guy got in a grave and then like he was wrapped up and he like unwrapped himself and walked out and said, I'm here, guys. You really believe that? And then you would start to look around in the room and you'd be like, am I surrounded by crazy people? Do you guys really believe this? Now, if you're an insider in the church, if you're an insider and you would like, you'd be like, man, I follow Jesus. I love this question because it really forces us to be honest about this claim that stands at the heart of the day, that like, this is hard to believe. That a guy physically got out of a tomb. Do reasonable people with brains really believe this? Is Christianity reasonable to believe? One of the misconceptions a lot of people have about Christianity is to become a Christian, you have to throw your brain out and follow your heart. Don't ask hard questions. Don't think. Just believe, man, and everything's going to be okay. Don't use rational thought. In order to become a Christian, do you have to throw your brains out and follow your heart? Hear me as a Christian pastor say this resoundingly. No way! No way. Here's how we know that. The next thing that happens in our passage shows us why this news about Jesus is reasonable to believe. You see, as people living in 2022, it's easy to think that People in the first century just kind of thought differently about miracles like resurrections than we do, you know? It's like we kind of look back, C.S. Lewis, uh, the great British writer, he, he called this chronological snobbery. We look back on people that used to live a long time ago and they, we, we're like, we pat them on the head and they go, they were simple people, you know? Uh, we are not simple people. We, we believe in science, you know? And of course we do, of course we do. But it's easy to look back on them and just be like, man, they thought differently about miracles like resurrections. They just kind of like, when, when people were going around going, Jesus has been raised from the dead, they were like, 
okay, yeah, that sounds good. And they didn't think about it. We think that they didn't use their heads, but they just used, used their hearts. They just kind of blindly believed it. But you need to see and you need to know that the opposite is true. The opposite is true. They, like us, were very skeptical about a guy coming back to life. Very skeptical. I mean, even the religious people, okay? So let me paint a little picture of the first century. If you want more on this, uh, go read N.T. Wright. He talks a lot about this. Even the religious people, the Jews, they, some, most of them didn't believe in a resurrection. Some of them believed in a resurrection, but they didn't believe in like, really like a personal resurrection of a human being. They, were, they believed in this kind of like vague thing at the end of history. They had no concept of resurrections like the one of G, that, that Jesus performed. And then like the Romans, they, no way. You know, it's like, there is no way that this is true. They were very skeptical of this. And so, because of this, the writer of our letter, a guy named Paul, writes as though his readers would be unwilling to accept such a claim, such an audacious, wild claim without good evidence. So what follows this, I love this, what follows this gospel presentation about the burial, the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what follows in this list, what follows this presentation, excuse me, is a list of people who were eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. Okay, so let's look at this and then we'll talk about what it means. Verse three says, just a little summary, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and, verse five, that he appeared to Cephas. Then he appeared to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. So there's probably about 500 of us in this room. Jesus appeared in front of a crowd like this. Physically. Likely, it'd be like Jesus Christ in the flesh as like bodily as I am right here, right here. 500 people like you like saw this. He appeared to 500 brothers and sisters at one time. I love this. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Here's how we should read the purpose of this list of 515 people. Paul is basically saying, I know you're going to have a hard time believing this. I know that this sounds like audacious and weird and wild. Un I know it sounds, in the truest sense of the word, unbelievable. I know it sounds that way. But all of these people have seen and experienced the risen Jesus. The very same one that was on the cross and in the tomb. And he goes even further. What does he say in verse 6? He goes, most of them are still alive. In other words, what's he, what's he telling them to do? He's going, if you need to go on a little pilgrimage, like a little self-pilgrimage, and you need to talk to one of them because you're having a hard time believing, go talk to them. They interacted with Jesus. You read the early gospel accounts, and I love this. It's kind of like at the end of the gospels, when Jesus is raised from the dead, you would think that like all of the disciples would be like, Yes, we've been waiting on this. This is exactly what we thought was going to happen. But almost every single one of them says, I don't believe that this is true. Almost every single one of them says, I don't believe that this is true. And as these early skeptics 
were trying to figure out whether they thought it was reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, they were really having to grapple with two realities. And we need to grapple with these same realities as we consider whether or not Christianity is reasonable to believe. Here's reality number one that they were grappling with and we need to grapple with. Reality number one is that people were looking for Jesus's body and couldn't find it. On the most foundational level, no one can produce the body of Jesus. This is really fascinating. The gospel summary above says not just that Jesus died, but that he was buried in a place. And we have accounts of where he was buried in the gospels. The scholar Peter Williams in his work, Can We Trust the Gospels? Great little book says this. It's hard to imagine belief in a risen Jesus getting very far if one could easily point to the grave in which he was still present. That's the point. And listen, you need to know that historically speaking, both the Jews and the Romans had massive political reasons to produce the body of Jesus. Massive political reasons. All that would have had to happen to squash the movement of the early Christians in the early church is for them to produce the body of Jesus, and they could not do it. And historically, we have to grapple with this reality. Why could no one find the body of Jesus? Now, you may be sitting there thinking, let me get in your little brain for a second. Well, somebody hit it. Easy. Somebody hit it. Like, you know, a couple of them went middle of the night, took the body away and threw it somewhere where nobody would find it. And then maybe. But then we have reality number two that they're trying to grapple with. Here's the second reality. A large number of people across a diversity of circumstances, testified that they had seen the risen Jesus. This is Paul's point in our passage. We are not talking about one single sighting or a couple of sightings or 10 sightings in a remote location. We're talking about hundreds of people. I think this is why Paul includes 515 people because like a couple people can make something up and make it believable. Not 515. I mean, if we played the little like telephone thing in here and we created a lie and we're like, okay, we're not going to tell anybody, but, you know, go out and, and, and say the lie. We would all get out there and like, it would fall to a million pieces. Right? There's a lot of people with a lot of different thoughts going on in your head. And let's add this. Many of these people who claim to meet the physically raised Jesus went on to be martyred for their faith in the risen Jesus. Fascinating. I have to put myself in that situation and think, man, if I had just kind of been in on a lie and my life was being threatened, at some point I'd be like, just kidding, guys, like we made it up. <laughs> okay? Only crazy people die for a lie. In Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 15, he points to the 515 different people ex who experienced the living Jesus. Tim Keller, pastored for a long time in Manhattan, great church, says this. So we are left with two hard-to-refute facts. That the tomb was empty and that hundreds of people claimed to have seen the risen Christ. If we had only the empty tomb, then we could plausibly claim the body was stolen. Yeah, somebody stole the body. If we had... Only, the test, only had the testimonies, we could say that they had to be 
fantasies. In fact, some people will claim, uh, who push back on the reality of the resurrection, that they had grief fantasies. That they were so grieved that they made up in their own head that they, you know, that they had seen the risen Jesus to kind of like, as a way to psychologically comfort themselves. If we had only the testimonies, we could say that they had to be fantasies. Together, however, they give evidence that something extraordinary happened. Something extraordinary happened. N.T. Wright says that if you rule out a resurrection, you have a formidable challenge to come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for these two facts, as well as for the birth of the church itself, which is a whole different ballgame, the explosive growth of early Christianity. In other words, the good news that Jesus died for our sin, was buried, and was raised from the dead might sound like wild news, It might even sound to you like weird news, but it is reasonable news. And if you choose to reject it, make sure that you have a good reason other than it just sounding kind of weird. Number three, what do these things mean for me personally? What do these things mean for me personally? And this is where we will land the plane. If that's what Christianity is, and it is reasonable to believe, what do these things mean for me personally? The guy who wrote this letter that we've been studying is a guy named Paul of Tarsus. Paul wrote the letter to the church in Corinth called 1 Corinthians. And before becoming a Christian, Paul was one of the greatest skeptics of Jesus Christ. And he was one of the greatest persecutors of the church. He hated Jesus and he hated the church. He hated it. And his primary goal in life was to stamp out the message of Jesus along with his followers. In fact, um, in one other New Testament book, in the book of Acts, in Acts 7 and 8, we find Paul right there uh, giving his personal approval to the martyrdom of one of the earliest Christians, a guy named Stephen. Paul's right there saying, yep, kill him. This message of Christianity is silly. I've got to get rid of it. I hate Jesus. I hate the church. He's distracting from what what Judaism is all about. Paul was a a zealous Jew. And he gave his approval of the, the execution of Stephen. He was about like as anti Jesus as you can get. But Paul meets the living Jesus and he hears this good news and everything changes for him. It changes Paul's life. And the last thing we find in our passage is Paul giving his personal story of how the living Jesus changed everything for him. And what this shows us is that Christianity is only good news if it's appropriated personally. This is not good news in general, This is not good news in theory. This is good news personally. Look at these these last few verses. He says this, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's what I used to do. He's telling you his story. I used to persecute the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, his grace toward me changed me. It wasn't in vain. It did something in my life. On the contrary, I worked harder 
than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It was the grace of God that changed me, not, not me. Whatever then, whether then, excuse me, it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. In short, Paul shows us that this good news of Christianity changed him from a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer in the church. And his point in sharing his personal journey, his personal story, is for us to realize that if this good news of Jesus can change a guy like him, then maybe it can change a person like me. Maybe it can. And we get super personal. We think like, man, if God could extend a guy like that grace, maybe after all of the terrible things he has done, maybe he can extend a person like me grace after all of the terrible things that I've done that are on the top of my head when I enter into a religious environment like that. Maybe God can show me grace too. Maybe his grace can, sh- his grace can change me too like it changed Paul. If God will forgive him of murdering Christians, maybe God will forgive me for the things I've done. If God can give him the hope of eternal life, maybe he can give me personally the hope of eternal life. You see, this good news of Easter Sunday, it not only meets us in our heads as a reasonable thing to believe, but it also meets us deep down in the deepest and most tender spots of our hearts as it shows us that Jesus Christ has made an end to all of the things that terrify us. Sin and death have been defeated through a cross and a resurrection. And that means for us personally that through Jesus, I can walk into this reality where there is no more shame, no more guilt, no more fear of the future, no more fear of death because Jesus is going to make all things new and all of us are being invited in. And the question that lingers over this whole thing is will you receive his invitation? Will you receive his invitation? Christianity is the good news, not of what we do for God, but what God does for us through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity has nothing to do with us getting our lives together. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ getting his life together on our behalf, dying the death that our sins deserve so that we could be forgiven and giving us the promise that we will be raised from the dead if we will place our faith in him. This is Christianity. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried in my grave and he will, by faith, raise me from the dead one day in the future. I want to end by sharing this verse with you um, that I think really makes it personal. We can go ahead and put it up on the screen. It's from Romans chapter 10. You see, this reality of the forgiveness of sin and the future resurrection, um, it's not true for everybody. It's not true because you come from a religious family. It's not true because you attend church every once in a while. It's not true because you try to do religious things. It's not true if you, for you if by just like holding the door for, for people who need help at Trader Joe's. You see, it becomes true for you whenever you 
confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's king. You see, it goes all the way back to what we talked about from Genesis 1 and 2. Our world is a world of chaos because we've chosen to live our way instead of God's way. And so the way back is by resubmitting to Jesus as king and allowing him to lead us in the way of flourishing. And so this is what Romans 10 verses 8 and 9 say. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I just want to put my cards on the table right now. What I hope for you is I hope that if you walked in here and you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God really did raise him from the dead, I hope that you will do that today. To be more plain, like, one of our hopes is that people who walk in here in the darkness will be converted to the light. You see, everybody's trying to convert you to something. This is what marketing's all about. Everybody's trying to convert you to something. The question is not, is everybody trying to convert me? The question is, can what they're promising really deliver on those promises? And because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, he can deliver on his promises. Here's the thing you need to know about the heights. The height, at the, here around the heights, we're, we're never pushy. We're never pushy. We think, in fact, religious pushiness is gross. If Jesus is alive, like he can change you. <laughs> we don't have to force things on you. We make invitations and you make decisions. We're never pushy with this stuff, but you know what? We really do believe this stuff. And we do believe that if you're a living, breathing human being, God hasn't given up on you, and you're being invited into the forgiveness of sin, the wiping clean of your slate, and the hope of eternal life, physical resurrection forever. So we're gonna respond really simply today. We're gonna respond through singing and baptisms. But I just want to say, man, if you've been sitting there and the Bible language for this is as we opened up the scriptures, if your heart was burning within you, if your heart was racing and you're like, I don't know about this, but I got to know more about this. If you're interested in knowing more about Jesus, I'm just going to go to the back of the room right back there by the computers. And if you want to talk, I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you're not ready for that, but you're interested and you're intrigued by the way of Jesus and the thing and these claims around Easter, we would just invite you to come back. That's it. You can sit in the back. You don't have to talk to anybody. And just like explore Jesus alongside of us. I would ask you to commit to four weeks. Don't try something out for one week. Try it out for four weeks and just see what the living Jesus is all about. Let me pray for us. And then we will respond and celebrate and sing and observe baptisms. Jesus, we believe that you are alive and this changes everything. We believe that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised, that God raised you from the dead, we will be saved. We will be saved from the consequences of our sin. Jesus, the scriptures say, we studied it today, that you have died for our sins in our place so that we could be forgiven. And your resurrection is a sign of things to come, that those who place their faith and trust in you, we will dance on our graves one day. 
because death will be defeated. And we will say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because Jesus will win the victory. Death will not have the final say. Jesus, you will. And they will be words of resurrection life and healing. And we live for that day. So be lifted high, Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Let's stand if you are able and respond as the Lord leads us.